We are in Acts chapter 10 this morning. We are getting back to the book of Acts. I don't know about you, but it feels like, at least with the deluge from the media, that, that division is one of the words of the day. It just seems like everywhere we go, everything we see sort of in glaring terms emphasizes how divided we are. Four years ago, Associated Press put out a, a book called Divided America, and, and this is what they wrote four years ago, and it, it's, you can probably only add to this. America is divided by political party, choice of media, income, gender, race or ethnic group, religious faith or not, generation, geography, and general outlook on the country's future. That has probably only escalated now over the last four years. Lots of battlegrounds, abortion, guns, borders, ballots, you name it. There, there's, there's debate about it. Hatred and division is not new. We are perhaps seeing it more due to the media, social media uh, overwhelms us. And yet the reality is we go back to Adam in the garden blaming Eve, pointing to Eve and, and, and beginning division by saying that she was responsible for their sin and Cain killing his brother Abel. Um, man has been awash in division. Even the coming of Christ, the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ said that it would bring division, that it would bring division even to families, that some would come to him and believe in him as Lord and Savior and others would reject him. And among those who rejected Christ, there would even be those who sought to destroy him. And so division is not new. And for centuries, man has tried to find ways to, to make peace, to, to bring people together, to legislate peace or to plead for peace or, or, or do what, what they can to sort of cajole people toward, toward peace, to heal division in some way. Well, here in Acts chapter 10, this is the, this is the preeminent example of God being the peacemaker, of God reconciling what would have been unreconcilable in Acts 10. We're going to uh, resume our study of Acts this morning. We'll spend probably about 10 weeks uh, right up until early December, and that'll get us to about chapter, through chapter 18, probably the next sort of dividing point in the book of Acts. Uh, and then after the Christmas season, we'll pick back up, and in the winter and spring, we'll finish up, Lord willing, the, the book of Acts. But, but I want to suggest to you that there is no chapter in the book of Acts that is as wonderful, as meaningful, as encouraging to, to most of us as this chapter is. Because Acts 10 describes the welcoming of Gentiles into the body of Christ. The church up until this point, as we've been reading about in Acts, is born amongst the Jewish people who embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Its spread is, is small at that point. It has stayed among the Jews. It has moved a little bit into Samaria, and even the Samaritans have ethnic ties back to Judaism. And so this is now the the, the, the leaping over the wall, in fact, the taking down of the wall between Jews and Gentiles. It is here that God declares once and for all and clearly above all that Jesus is Lord of all, that all who come to him by faith, regardless of their background, their tongue, their tribe, their nation, whatever it might be, there is no one outside the reach of the grace of God. Ephesians 2.14 speaks of the, the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles and how Jesus Christ destroys that wall. He takes that wall down and he brings believers together in the body of Christ. There is a way for true and lasting peace with our creator 
and with one another, and that is through the gospel, and that is described here in Acts chapter 10 as, as spreading, as crossing this line in this port city of Caesarea, this important city along the Mediterranean is where this takes place. I'm going to begin, and we'll, we'll read in sections Acts chapter 10. Let me start in verse 1. We'll go down through verse 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who was called Peter, he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. There is a, a theme that will dominate this, this chapter. And in fact, the beginning part of chapter 11 that follows, which is sort of the, um, the, 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 the postlude, if you will, to the story. And that theme is that this is God at work in this chapter, that what we see is not the, the product of man scheming, man trying to form peace, man trying to build unity, that at the heart and soul of this, this is God who initiates and does this remarkable work of bringing believers into the body of Christ, and particularly those now who no longer have natural ties to ethnic Judaism. Uh, it was clear, we know, that when Jesus came, that there was an expectation that he was coming as a Jew, born of the Jews, to be the Jewish Messiah, to be the Savior. That, that was something that the Jews had anticipated was the coming of this Messiah, and Jesus fulfills that. But it was also clear from early on that he was not limited to coming to save the Jews and rescue the Jews. In fact, when Jesus is an infant, when he has been born to Joseph and Mary, he is taken as an infant to Jerusalem. And there at the temple, there is a devout man named Simeon who speaks over what God has, has given to him. He takes Jesus into his arms and he describes Jesus as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. There is there on the grounds of the temple in Jerusalem already this expectation that this Jewish Messiah is not simply for the Jews, but he has come to also reveal the hope and the salvation of the Gentiles as well. At the start of John's gospel, when it describes Jesus as coming for his own, but his own do not receive him, it speaks of him as the light coming into the world. Even there, it describes his rejection Largely by his own, but it says, so that as many as did receive him became children of God, not born of blood. In other words, it's, it's not about ethnic ancestry, ultimately. It is about belief in Jesus Christ. And so as many as did receive him, as many as who believed in him, regardless of bloodline, they are now believers in Jesus Christ and sons and daughters of God. From the beginning, God's plan of redemption was to begin in Jerusalem, but to spread from there and go beyond there. And this is the fulfillment of it now in Acts chapter 10. After his death and resurrection, when Jesus Christ is preparing the apostles to go and to proclaim the word, he commands them that they are going to go into all of the world, and they are going to proclaim the gospel. In Acts 1.8, he describes that picture of, of kind of expanding circles of influence, if you will, when it says in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city, 
in Judea, the region, to Samaria, the, the next sort of halfway kind of point, if you will, of, of mixed race Jews, and then to the end or to the remotest parts of the earth. We've, we've read all this in the book of Acts, how the church was born in Jerusalem amongst Jewish believers. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They are filled with the Spirit. And then Samaria, Philip goes and he preaches. Peter comes, the Holy Spirit again comes, and there is genuine salvation that happens there. Now we're in Acts chapter 10. The gospel is spreading, and it begins the story with this Gentile military officer. From what we know about this description here of both his name and the Italian cohort, it's probably a, a, a group of those who have been freed at one point, who were perhaps slaves or who were captured at some point by the Romans who have over time uh, been taken into the Roman army and they are serving and he has risen to the point of an officer there. We also understand pretty quickly that he has some understanding of the Jewish God, that he has some understanding of this monotheism, that there is one true God and Cornelius is seeking after this God. He is striving to know this God. He is speaking to this God in prayer and he is using his money, his, his giving, to, to help Jewish people, to support those people. Cornelius lived in Caesarea. It's uh, northwest of Jerusalem. It's along the Mediterranean. Uh, historians tell us at this point in time, it was probably about the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire. So it's an important place named after Julius Caesar. There's a great military presence, predominantly Gentile and with a Jewish population within it. And that's who Cornelius would have interacted with. And that's who he began to worship with. And, and clearly, it's, as it describes here, leading his family in that as well, as he's pointing them to this God. Down in, in verse 22, when they are talking about Cornelius, it describes him again as, a, as, as one who feared God. And it says he's well spoken of by the Jews, that he has this reputation. The, the, the point, I think, when we see that in verse 22 is to make it clear that he is He's not converted over to Judaism. He has not walked through the process of conversion from Gentile to Jew, which would have involved circumcision and, and several other steps along that process. But he is well regarded. They, they understand him as a friend, as somebody who wants to know the, the God of Israel and, and who is worshiping alongside, which in and of itself would have run entirely contrary to the polytheism that dominated that culture. That, that, that culture was all about various gods, the, the Greek mythology and all of the, the, the gods that the Romans uh, adhered to. And so there, there would have been, a for a Roman military officer, would have been no expectation that this guy would be devoted to the one true God of heaven. And yet that is what he is displaying early on. God gives him a vision. Tells them, I want you to send some guys down to Joppa, and I want, that's down the Mediterranean coast, about a day's journey, 30, 30 plus miles down the coast. Go down and get this guy named Peter and bring Peter back and, and have Peter speak to you. He says this is in response to Cornelius' prayers. And so at some level, whatever Cornelius has been asking God for, this is going to be an answer to his prayers. You go get this guy. I've heard your prayers, so here's, here's what I want you to do in response. Go get Peter. All right, so let's read on. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey, this is the guys sent by Cornelius, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Also, the word could be unholy. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Cornelius gets his vision the prior day at about three in the afternoon, the ninth hour. So it's about three in the afternoon. The next day it is about noon. Peter is up on the rooftop and he is gone there for the purpose of praying. But it's also midday and the midday meal is coming and Peter's starting to get a little hungry. And it's kind of like, you know, you guys here at second service somewhere, you know, in the next half hour, you, your mind may wander a little bit in the course of worship, and you may wonder what's ahead for lunch. You may start to think about being hungry just a little bit, and there's Peter at this moment is starting to think about his hunger. And with that, God gives him this vision, and it's a vision of all sorts of animals. Now, we go back to the Old Testament, and Leviticus chapter 11 lays out God's instructions for animals that are clean and unclean under the Mosaic law. A lot of this fits into dietary, sanitary sort of things to, that, that protect the nation of Israel. But it is also clear that God is firmly establishing in the Old Testament law that there are animals that are clean that you may eat. There are animals that are unclean that you may not. They are forbidden to you, and you are not to eat those animals. Here's Peter, head of the midday meal, now with this sort of buffet spread put out in front of him, and the instructions are to choose something, to kill it, and to eat it. And, and Peter looks at this scene, and he is appalled. He emphatically says, I will not, absolutely not. I have, I have never eaten anything under the category of unclean, and I am not about to start. And, and in fact, for Peter, it, no doubt as he's looking at this scene, even the clean animals are now contaminated by virtue of, of being in there with this whole collection of unclean animals. And so he is just refusing. Three times this vision is repeated. We would presume that for Peter, at, at first... This is, he's, he's sensing this as some test. This is in some way, this is a, a test of his fortitude, and he is being called to do something that he believes he cannot do and should not do. And so the initial reaction is emphatic, no. Second time, no. Third time, Peter starts to realize this is no longer in the category of a test. This is now a command. This is now the God of heaven saying, no, Peter. <laughs> Third time. You need to do this. You must do this. And in fact, stop regarding what I have declared to be clean as being unclean. Something has changed. Something with the, the coming of Christ, something with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has caused this to change. And there is now divine decree that says this is clean. There are Jewish writings outside of the scriptures that, that had some anticipation of this day when the Messiah came, that, that foods that were once unclean would be regarded as clean. This is now coming to pass. But that's the sub-point. The, the, the whole dietary piece of this is important, but it's the minor issue to what, what, what God is really seeking to communicate to Peter and what message Peter will finally begin to understand in a very short time. And that is that, that you are about to do something astounding. You are about to go amongst Gentiles and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is just sort of the, the preparation for Peter in, in that line of, don't you call unclean what I have declared to be clean. Don't you call unacceptable what I have, I, I have made to be acceptable. That, that's the heart of the message that Peter needs to, to get at this point. And he will. Verse 17, let's read on. Now, while Peter was 
Inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Here's the verse that I think is central to this section. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. In other words, he's a Gentile, but the Jews speak well of him. Was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. Let me stop there. So it's about a day's journey from Caesarea down to Joppa. And so we're into the, the second day, noon, Peter's praying. These men show up. The, the servants of Cornelius arrive at the house where Peter is staying. I would suggest to you verse 20 is the key here. When the Spirit of God tells Peter, I want you to welcome these men without hesitation. This is the answer to Peter's confusion when it says that he's perplexed by this vision and, and Peter's wrestling with what this is about food, what's God trying to teach me about food, and then there's this, there are men coming, and you are to you are to welcome them without hesitation, is what the ESV says. I, NAS says without misgivings, and I would suggest to you that that's a better translation of the word there. The idea isn't, Peter, you need to rush downstairs, like don't, don't hesitate, hurry up and welcome them. The idea is you are to receive them without prejudging them. That when you come to the door and you realize that these are Gentiles sent by a Gentile from Caesarea, you are not to presume bias at this point. You are not to make up your mind that there is something wrong here, but rather you are to receive these men. You are to welcome them. And so that's why it's welcome them without any misgivings at that point. No, no sort of standoffishness that says, ah, you're, you're Gentiles. That's what he does. So that takes us to day three then. Peter, along with, with men from Joppa, go with these guys back up to Caesarea. Important to note, and, and we'll see this as we read on, it says that, that some went with Peter. Chapter 11 tells us there were six brothers, six other Jewish believers who were with Peter, who went with him back to Caesarea. Why is that important? Because there will come a point for Peter after this all takes place, when, when Gentiles start believing that the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish church in Jerusalem is going to say, what's going on? What, what, what were you doing, Peter? What were you doing in Caesarea? What were you doing in a Gentile home? What were you doing preaching? And so taking these six brothers, Peter will say, was, they were witnesses. They saw that this was not his doing. This was not some independent act by Peter. This was God. This is just further evidence that God is at work with him. And so six reliable witnesses go with him to see this work in Caesarea. All right, let's pick up the rest of verse 23. It is the next day now. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I, I too am a man. 
And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. It is one thing for Peter, after receiving his vision down in Joppa, to invite some Gentiles into his home and to show them hospitality and welcome them. It is a whole nother thing in Peter's mind for him as a Jew to step into the unclean home, the unholy home of a Gentile. And, and, and so Peter has now been invited in, and, and this is where the Spirit's warning from back in verse 20 comes in when you are to receive them without bias. You are to receive them without misgivings. You are to do what I say in this without drawing judgments in your mind based on your, your past record and your past thinking in this. You are to welcome them. Cornelius, after his unusual vision, Peter arrives, and, and in Cornelius' mind, he's already had a, a heavenly vision of some sort. An angel has appeared to him, and so now this one at the door he assumes is, is some kind of heavenly messenger, and so he bows down, and, and Peter quickly lifts him up and says, I'm, I'm just a man. Don't do that. Peter obviously knows better than to try and even put himself, allow himself to be put on a plane with Jesus. But more importantly, what, what Peter does here is he wants Cornelius to understand that he sees himself as just a fellow man, nothing more at this point, because... Again, if we know anything about the culture from that time, there is no question about how a typical religious Jew thinks about Gentiles. They're dogs. They are unclean. They're defiled. I, I, I will tolerate them. I will be around them in society when I have to be. But, but when it comes right down to it, I am not breaking bread with these people. I am not getting close to them. They are unclean. That, that was the common Jewish view of Gentiles. And so Peter here is, is, is really trying to make it clear, nope, I am, I am just a man. I am no more, no less, because he is, he is in the process of learning the profound lesson that God has just begun teaching him. You do not look down on these Gentiles. You do not continue to classify them as being somehow unholy or common or unclean. If I say that they are to be accepted, then you are to accept them. They are not defiled. And Peter stresses that. I, I think it's at least partly his way of countering any notion that he should be worshipped in any way. Peter, frankly, is quite transparent at this point when, when he points out that I'm just a man. And essentially what he says is, is I would not be here were it not for God sending me. I, I, I would not be entering your house. I, I'm looking at the customs and the norms, and, and I would not be coming here apart from God sending me here and, and telling me to come to you. I am, I am obeying him. He's not meaning that in a derogatory way, as if you're something bad and I'm only doing this because God is. He's doing that in a very humble way to say, I know my own self and my own heart, and, and there's no way on my own I'd be coming into your home. This is God who has sent me to come to you. And so I am obeying God, and in fact, he uses the word there in verse 29, without objection. I, I didn't raise my hand anymore and say, God, I, I don't know if I can enter this home. This doesn't seem right. He sent me to you. This is, this is incredibly powerful, and it should be a rebuke to the church of Jesus Christ for ever 
at any point in its history, acting as if some people are less than others before God, forever making distinctions based on ethnicity, skin color, social class, whatever it might be, this, this is a rebuke to that uh, for the church, for believers ever even thinking that some are beyond the reach of God's grace, that, that some are just too much of a mess, too different, whatever it might be. The notion that followers of Jesus Christ would prejudge others on the basis of ethnicity or social standing or neighborhood or life circumstances is dead wrong. And that's what Peter is being slammed in the face with at this point. That's what the vision started with, was not just to say, this is not just about food, Peter. This is about everything that I say. In particular, we're going to apply this to people, and you are not to judge them as being unclean. Peter's statement in verse 28 about the unlawfulness of, of a Jew associating with or visiting someone from another nation is a is a stretch and a perversion of God's law. God obviously had places, even in his Old Testament law, for showing hospitality to aliens. This, this complete no contact is what Judaism had developed into by Peter's day. And essentially by Peter reciting this to Cornelius and saying, hey, listen, it is unlawful for me to enter your homes. You yourselves know it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or enter, visit uh, anyone of another nation. Essentially what Peter's saying is, listen, guys, you know our history. You know that the, the lines that divide us were drawn in the sand a long, long time ago, and that for generations we would have nothing to do with you, and that, in fact, our religious leaders would, would stress that very same thing, that we should have nothing to do with you and not associate with you. Peter is saying, if I, Cornelius, if I followed the societal norms in which I grew up in, there is no way I would step into that home. I would not, I would not be here. God is at work. God, is, God has shown you a vision, and he has shown me a vision, and God is in this. And he has brought me to you. And so that's why Peter then asks the question, so why have you sent for me? I'm not going to, because of time, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, rehearse this, this story again. I, I'd encourage you this afternoon to take the time to just read 11, 1 through 18, um, because that, that section of chapter 11 is the postlude to this story. What happens is after Gentiles become believers, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem are saying, what, what's going on here? We've heard this story about Peter going to a, a Roman military officer's home in Caesarea, and he hung out with the Gentiles, he broke bread with the Gentiles. We need Peter to come down here and explain this to us because this is so far beyond our capacity to understand. There is still this current of anti-Gentilism, if you will, that, that's running through the church. And so they are trying to understand how he could break bread with uncircumcised Gentiles. And they are more than a little shocked and appalled. And so Peter will uh, rehash this story. Luke will repeat it. The fact that Luke gives us the original and Peter's testimony in front of the church in Jerusalem should speak volumes to us of how important this moment is in church history. Luke is making sure we get both versions of the same story so that we know this happened and this is important. And Peter goes and he tells them again. And Peter, when he deals with the Jewish brethren in chapter 11, is not shocked by their criticism. He's not appalled as, oh, guys, you should understand this, how, how we're all one. He understands because he's come out of that, that very same culture. And, and so he just rehearses for them. 
And essentially what he says in chapter 11 is, guys, this is all of God. This was not a Peter thing. This was not an idea that I had one day that I should try. This was all of God. It is God's intent to save Gentiles, and God did this, and here are my six brothers who were with me the whole time, and they can vouch for this whole thing, that it was the Spirit of God that was at work. Let's read on. Chapter 10, verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. For as much as Peter's statement, uh, just paraphrasing, but Peter's statement essentially was, I wouldn't be here except that God has done this amazing thing and sent me here. Cornelius' response is essentially, well, as a matter of fact, I didn't just invite you randomly. God gave this vision. God told me to bring you here. I, I, I didn't just one day wake up and say, I'm going to call Peter and have him come. To God has done this. God has called you to be speaking here. That, that is... That is the heart and soul of all that's going on here in chapter 10. This is one of the most dramatic, important moments in the life of the early church. And Luke wants us to know, give glory to God. This is his saving work. This is the creator and sustainer of man taking what is a generation's old ethnic division and hatred and shattering it in the gospel of Jesus Christ and bringing people together as brothers and sisters who love each other sincerely. They responded to God's call. We, we need to be clear about this, and, and, and this is not a justification for people's behavior by any stretch, but racism, division, bias, ethnocentrism, they are the natural state of man. That is man apart from Christ. Those things are endemic to his heart because of who he is as a sinner by nature. Paul wrote that in Titus 3.3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The hatred and division that marks our country and that fills our world is, is a world without Christ. It, 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 is, it is the way that Scripture says it will be. Again, that doesn't justify it. That doesn't mean there's not reason to, to, to deal with it and to confront it, especially as believers. But it's also the reality that ultimately what we're seeing here in Acts 10 is the only true and lasting and real solution to bring people together as brothers and to create peace. The, the ultimate solution is heart change. And it, and it is that work of redemption that God does. Let's just read further on down now. Verse 34, Acts 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand, God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to your prayer, Cornelius, is Jesus. And, and let me remind you, you've probably heard some of this about Jesus. Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus who, who did good works, who did miraculous things that you heard about, who was crucified and who was risen. The answer is Jesus. In, in verse 34... When Peter, uh, where it says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Other translations insert the word now in there. Sometimes they put it in italics, like in the NAS. It's, it, it means that this wasn't actually in the, the original Greek in which Luke wrote it, but we're supplying it because it sort of fits the, the grammar of what's going on here. And, and that's actually helpful because when Peter says, now I understand, the Greek word for understand is an intense version of the Greek verb for seizing or taking something. It is an emphatic way of saying, now I have grabbed hold of this. Now I, this truth that eluded me before is now overtaken me. It, it's the same word that's used in Math, uh, Mark 9, 18, when it speaks of the demon who seizes the young boy and throws him to the ground, or Jesus in John chapter 12 speaks of how darkness will overtake you. What, what Peter is saying here is, this truth has overtaken me. This truth has overwhelmed me. This truth has seized me. And you say, well, Peter, what, what truth is that? That God shows no partiality. I, I, I now get it. This truth has just, it's like a lightning bolt that has rocked through me that God shows no partiality. The, the Greek word for partiality means receiver of faces. If you literally translate it, it's the receiver of face. It, it, it goes to the idea of what a king would do in recognizing a subject. One commentator, Daryl Bach, writes this. The word conveys the idea that God receives faces or lifts up the face that bows to him in acceptance. The point is that God makes no distinction in how he reacts to people. All have the same potential access to God. In, in, in the secular culture... The king on his throne, when, when a subject came in, the subject came in with his head rightly bowed down before the king, awaiting the king's direction to, to lift up his head and to make eye contact. It was up to the king to choose at that point whether or not to receive this person, to acknowledge this person, or to reject this person. And so this idea of receiver of faces, if you can picture the king choosing whether or not he will receive this one and making sort of a, a superficial distinction based on the person's appearance or whatever it might be. And Peter says, God does not do that. There is no sort of fickle partiality in God where he, he you know, looks at a man's appearance or his resume or his accomplishments or his social standings or anything like that. God receives all who come to him in faith. All who come believing in Jesus Christ, all who come to him 
turning from their sins and embracing the Savior, God receives them. There is no bias against a man or woman's social status, skin color, age, place of origin, life circumstances. God shows no receiving of faces. He's not evaluating based on the external. The question is, will you come to him by faith? Will you turn to him and trust in him fully? It needs to be clear because there are some commentators of old who dealt with Acts chapter 10 and said, oh, you know, this, this, this Cornelius guy was probably already saved and he just needed to have that confirmed because, look, he was already praying and doing all the right things. And, and Peter speaks there and, uh, of, of being acceptable. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And you got some who will make the case and say, see that... Peter was, Cornelius was, was, was really saved. Peter was just sort of the messenger to tell him that, yep, just I'm here to give you the stamp of approval and you just have to be a good person and live a life that's acceptable. That is not the case. And we know that from what Peter preached. Peter preached the gospel. Peter preached Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God who performed miraculous things, was crucified and risen, and that you must believe on him for the forgiveness of your sins. He says that in verse 35. We, um, where am I? Verse 35, missing my spot here, sorry. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Sorry, I need to go down to verse 43 is what I mean. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What is it that is acceptable in, in fearing God? It is to believe in Jesus Christ, the one whom he has sent, and to believe in his death and resurrection, and therein lies forgiveness of sins. So this is not a, a good works kind of message that, that's being preached. In fact, if, if you, chapter 11, when he speaks about Jesus in chapter 11, and he talks about Cornelius' vision in verse um, 13, and, and he he told us how he had seen the angel stand in the house and said, send to Joppa. He will declare to you a message, verse 14 of 11, a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Peter, again, is saying to those in Jerusalem, there was no difference in the salvation. It was the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I proclaimed Christ, that's the message by which they were saved. Cornelius, like every other person who has ever lived, had to come to the place of recognizing that he is a sinner in need of a savior. And that Jesus Christ, in dying on the cross, took the punishment for sin and rose again to give eternal life and forgiveness. And that's what he does. Verse 44 then says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, those, those guys who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. What's happening here? Peter is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the people in that room are listening and they are believing. And it is their faith, it is their belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is saving them. And as they are being saved, God in his grace is now pouring out his spirit on them. In the same manner in which he poured it out in Acts chapter 2 on the Jewish believers who heard Peter preach, repent 
and turn to Jesus Christ. He is the Lord and Savior. Believe in him. The same way that they had turned in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans, and believed. And, and Peter comes, and, and God has this sort of unique role for Peter in the early church to be sort of the, the confirming stamp who, who is there and who says, yep, this is exactly what happened at Pentecost. This is exactly what happened at Samaria. They heard the truth about Jesus Christ. They turned from their sins and believed, and they received the fullness of God's Spirit. And they were saved. There is no distinction. All who come to Christ, all who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ are saved. And they receive the fullness of the Spirit of God. The Spirit was poured on them just like it was, he was on the Jews, just like he was on the Samaritans. Doesn't matter what your life looked like. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what circumstances you come out of. If you trust in Jesus Christ... You are saved if you repent and believe in the gospel. You are saved. Because what Jesus has brought is peace. That, that the essence of what Peter began to preach at the beginning back in verse 36, the gospel is the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The hostility that lies between you and God, that, that your sin has created between you and God, that is overcome in Jesus Christ because he has taken the penalty for your sin. The hostility that exists between you and others may be reconciled because of Jesus Christ. You can be brought to, to being brothers and sisters in Christ if you will trust in him because Jesus has paid the penalty of your sin. Let me just end the last couple of verses in, of this in chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. Peter's just got done recounting the whole thing to what were probably originally some skeptical Jewish believers who were trying to understand all this. What's this about Gentiles? And so he explains it all. Look at verse 17 of chapter 11. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, that being the Spirit, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, that is now the audience listening to Peter, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Celebration. This is, this is exciting stuff. That in this moment, Peter has just walked through it and said, guys, God did this. God saved them. In fact, the Spirit was poured out, and all the evidence that we saw here in Jerusalem, it was the same there's no question that God did this. And if this is what God, if, if this is what God was doing and he's pouring out his spirit on them, I couldn't stop this. I couldn't, if I wanted to, I couldn't stand in the way of this. I couldn't deny it to you because it's what God has done. We are living at a, at a time of hurt and grief and division and name calling and bitterness and anger. And it is flaunted in our faces day after day. And we need Acts 10 to remind us that man's only true and lasting hope lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is peace and reconciliation. And I, I would just suggest to you three quick things that we need to do as a result of this. One is pray. Acts chapter 10 should drive you to pray earnestly and desperately that God would grant repentance that leads to life. Pray that we would see what Peter saw, that God would be at work and that he would take even the most difficult, obstinate, hateful people and that he would show his power and he would save them.
that, that he would grant them repentance that leads to life. Second thing is we need to act. Peter still had to go and speak. Ultimately, Peter still had to obey the commission to go to, to Caesarea and to speak. And, and you and I need to do the same. We still need to speak Christ. We still need to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We still need to point them to their hope in Christ. Even the ones who seem to be good in appearance, like Cornelius was, still need to hear that there is a Savior who died for them, and they need to trust in him and repent of their sins. We need to speak that. This is, this is as great a missions passage as you will ever find in terms of People need to go. Peter had to go, had to go where he would have been uncomfortable, to a culture that he wasn't quite sure of, to a house that he would have normally entered, and speak the gospel. And then last, we should rejoice. We should read a passage like this, and we should be in awe of how great our God is. That God redeems those who we in our small minds would imagine are so far out of God's reach that are so embittered in their hatred and their anger and their belligerence against him, God still saves. God still redeems. God still crosses ethnic lines. That's why we pray. That's why Stuart prayed during the, the, the time before for an unreached people group in India because we believe that God still has a passion to reach those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should rejoice that this is the God who saved us and who we serve today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a glad-hearted people because we, we know that um, we are no better off. We, we came into this whole deal no better off than Cornelius or Peter when he was still trying to sort out who Jesus was. Lord, it is your grace that has saved us. We are here this morning, and if this, if this truth is is ringing clear to our hearts, and we are trusting in Jesus Christ, it is because you and your grace opened our eyes to the light of Christ and breathed life into the deadness of our hearts so that we might embrace Christ. Thank you. Thank you for, despite all of our sinfulness, all the stuff that marred us, that you have shown grace. Now, Father, help us to be a people who long to see your gospel transform lives, who long to proclaim your gospel. Lord, forgive us. We, uh, we watch the news and, and we are so tempted toward anger, toward people with whom we disagree, people who we, we question their motives and we, we have all sorts of fears and doubts about them. Lord, we, we're reminded again that they are not out of the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we earnestly pray. Father, we, we pray this morning, I think each one here, we can, we can think of a, a family member or a loved one or a coworker or someone who has stubbornly rejected Christ, who has shut us off from talking about him, who has shown hatred toward the gospel, who has despised the truth. Father, we come before you this morning pleading with you to save, pleading with you to grant them repentance that leads to life, pleading with you to give us persistence to continue to speak the truth, continue to hold out Christ, continue to love like Christ, continue to preach 
the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that all the fruit that comes to bear because of that is yours. We are thankful for your good and mighty work in saving sinners. And as startling as it was for those early believers to hear that the gospel made its way to Caesarea and penetrated into a Gentile home and began saving people who said, stay and, and preach to us some more. Here we are today, thousands of miles away, reveling in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ because your mighty work continues. Thank you for that. Use us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.